Pijama. Pijama for a big thing of water. Hundred francs. During our little break there, I was having a conversation with some of you about where um, antibiotics are most commonly used in this country. What population gets them the most? It's it's not pediatrics. It's not the elderly. It's not the young adults. It's it's farm animals. So it's something like three quarters of all antibiotics that get used in this country are in are in farm animals. And that certainly contributes to some extent to uh, that antibiotic industry. Alright, what is this um what is this an image of? Right, so so this would be a strand of DNA. In order for protein synthesis to occur, the DNA needs to unwind and match up with additional base pairs for replication. Right? We all remember this from whenever we learned it, months, years, centuries ago. All right, this unwinding occurs through an enzyme known as helicase, H-E-L-I-C-A-S-E. What keeps the coil unwound are enzymes such as DNA gyrase. Topoisomerase is an enzyme that sometimes plays a role as well, but let's just stick to one. So DNA gyrase is necessary to keep the supercoil from coiling again. Right? For DNA to be packaged within cells, it can't just stay open as these stranded pieces. It just is too big to fit. So it gets coiled up and packaged, sort of like a telephone cord might coil up if you use it a lot. In the old days, we had rooms with telephones on the side. and. The, Thing was hanging down. I could use that visually to depict what happens, but that's gone away. All right. So what keeps this from winding up on itself is DNA gyrase. What the fluoroquinolone medications do is inhibit DNA gyrase. So what happens? The DNA collapses, and the replication can't occur. So these are drugs that inhibit protein synthesis by directly targeting the DNA production and replication within the cells themselves. And because of that overlap between DNA and these enzymes in bacterial cells and DNA and similar enzymes in human cells, we now enter into more potential for organ toxicities when we use the fluoroquinolone antibiotics. Highly effective drugs within their spectrums of activity, but greater potential to do harm. And thus, we want to be careful about using them in non-judicious ways. All right, so now we can look at these across the generations just like we did with the cephalosporins. The difference is the spectrum is the opposite in terms of how it changes. So the first of these, naladixic acid, not a drug we use today because the oral bioavailability is relatively poor. 
It was good for treating urinary tract infections, and that was about it. The newer options, better oral absorption, greatly improved oral absorption. They started off as being drugs that were good for gram-negatives. And as you move into the newer generations, better for gram-positives. And maybe lose a little bit of the gram-negative activity along the way. So again, the opposite of what you see, to some extent, the opposite of what you see with the cephalosporins. We're going to pick just two of them to remember by name. What do you think one of them is? Ciprofloxacin. Yeah, ciprofloxacin. And again, a drug many of us know at least someone who's been treated with that drug. Maybe some of us have experience with it ourselves. The other one I want you to be familiar with is levofloxacin, one of these three drugs that were developed in the early 2000s. Cipro is a drug that's most commonly used to fight what? Enteral infection. It has the potential for pseudomonal activity in some settings. Unfortunately, not here. We've used Cipro too much for it to be a drug we can count on to sufficiently treat pseudomonas at Tufts Medical Center or anyone else in Boston, anywhere else in Boston. It maybe is okay if you're using it in addition to other anti-pseudomonal therapies, but by itself will not be enough to treat the infection in most instances. But at one time, it was that good. It's just we've used too much of it. What is it used more commonly for? Gut infections. Used historically for some STIs, although not, again, we've sort of blown through that type of therapy and is too much resistance for it to be of use. GI infections and urinary infections. Whether it be uncomplicated or complicated urinary tract infections, ciprofloxacin is a highly effective drug. Better to reserve it for the complicated cases because we can usually get by with other drugs for the uncomplicated cases. Other drugs that have less what you might refer to as collateral damage. Lateral damage being the side effects and resistance potential that might come with excessive use. What, what are the most common sexually transmitted infections in this country? Chlamydia. Chlamydia and? Gonorrhea. Gonorrhea. Cipro at one time was a drug that could treat both of those. One drug to treat both organisms, but there's just too much resistance out there, especially between... Cipro and gonorrhea for it to be accepted for first-line use anymore. All right, and then you move into the 2000s, and maybe you lose a little bit of that pseudomonal activity, at least in native state, but you pick up some gram-positives, including streptomoniae. So this is where we might go, a drug like levofloxacin, to treat a respiratory infection where we have a high suspicion of not just streptomo, but penicillin-resistant strep pneumo. Like if you know that the strep pneumo in your community 20% of the time is resistant to penicillins, then one of these quinolones in the 2000s would make sense to use. These are grouped together, they're referred to as respiratory quinolones because they will treat all of the most commonly encountered respiratory pathogens. All of these are covered with a high degree of sensitivity when you use a drug like fluvofloxacin. If you can find another drug to use first, it would be better to use that other drug. 
save the levofloxacin for when you really need it. So the very effective option, should that be where you end up. The newest drug in this family, delafloxacin, just became available a couple months ago. It has some unique differences in terms of side effects, but it is otherwise very similar to levofloxacin. It's the side effect profile that's driving its use right now. Some of the things we're about to talk about aren't as common with that drug as the others. Anything else you know about these drugs? You come in here with preconceived notions. Will they work for skin infections? Yeah, they will usually. Again, we like to reserve them for when other things aren't suitable, but they usually will work for skin infections as well, including some of the more complicated ones. MRSA, not the best choice, but some of the others, pretty good. All right, like the tetracyclines, chelation types of interactions. So spacing administration times becomes important with milk, antacids, multivitamins with minerals. Sucralfate is a specific type of cytoprotectant drug that we'll talk about later on in the year. Some of these drugs, not all of them, but some of them interact with cytochrome enzymes. And there are other drugs that may be affected by those interactions. You see this come up most often with Cipro. I'm not going to ask you to remember specifically the interactions. What I might do, however, is describe a scenario where patient A is getting Cipro, and now they're also prescribed a drug like warfarin. What might happen? The general answer is a drug interaction. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. GI side effects. This is the other thing I thought some of you might bring to the room, is that nausea here is a fairly common side effect. Not as high as tetracyclines, but higher than most antibiotics. And again, taking with a little bit of food, the right foods, seems to minimize that greatly. There are CNS side effects. Again, dizziness, sometimes more severe in some patients. Overall, not super common, but very comparable to what you might see with tetracyclines. There is photosensitivity. So this is now number two on our list of antibiotics likely to cause photosensitivity. What was the other one? The tetracyclines. So one is tetracyclines, again, in no particular order. One is tetracyclines, two is fluoroquinolones. We'll have to get to three later on today or on Wednesday. This is one of the areas where that newer drug, Baxdella, delafloxacin, differs. It doesn't produce photosensitivity. So that might be beneficial in certain climates or in New England for two months out of the year. All right, then there is QT prolongation, just like we saw with what other therapy? Somewhere today we saw this, the macrolides. Maybe even more likely with the quinolones. This is the second feature of delafloxacin that's unique. It doesn't prolong the QT. Doesn't cause photosensitivity and so far has not been shown to prolong QT, but many of the quinolones are known to do this. In fact, one of them was taken off of the market because there was so much QT prolongation. Crepofloxacin, which was also a palindrome, Raxar. Just to go back here, there's a couple of parentheses off to the right, or brackets. That's because they've come and gone. Crepofloxacin gone because of QT prolongation. These other two because of other reasons. 
one liver toxicity, the other one impaired glucose tolerance. So liver toxicity for some of these. Trovofloxacin is gone because of that. You could get it if you really wanted to, but I haven't seen it used in a decade. There was a point in time where almost anyone that came to our emergency department with an infection left with trovofloxacin. It was a drug that was really convenient because it was one pill once a day for about seven days and treated almost everything. So you really have to know what you're doing. Just give that drug and <laughs> off they go. Unfortunately, some patients developed really severe liver toxicity, not just here, but across the country, and that led to a severe restriction. Some patients ended up needing a liver transplant. Imagine that you come in with an infection that could have been treated with something else, and you ended up needing a liver transplant because of the drug therapy that you got. Pretty, pretty dire outcome. Then these other ones. These are the ones that are getting a lot of attention and are parts of the reasons or the main reasons why we're trying to restrict quinolones. The alterations in glucose metabolism can occur with any quinolone, more likely with gadifloxacin than the others. So that drug, again, has come and is now gone. It's more likely to occur with that one, but could occur with others. The arthropathies and tendonitis. Some of you may be familiar with this. Antibiotics that have been associated with acute Achilles tendon ruptures. It's the quinolone drugs where that's the case. It's usually when you're overusing that tendon combined with the antibiotic therapy. So what do you want to do there? <laughs> Maybe a good excuse to take it easy for that week or a couple of weeks. The people that are high risk, other than the obvious excessive use of that tendon, are what population? Old people. Well, other than overuse, other than the high endurance athletic person who's using their Achilles or other tendons repeatedly, the elderly, the elder, however you want to define that, I think this says grade 65, but the older population, anyone else? Connective tissue disorders? Maybe underlying connective tissue disorder, which as you get older, more likely to be diagnosed with. Not high on the list, though, in terms of the top, like, three to five. Frequent cortisone injections. Frequent use of corticosteroids. Either frequent use of injections or chronic use of steroids at high enough doses. And then the transplant population, people who have received organ transplants, but that could be confounded by the fact that many of them are older and most of them are on chronic use of steroids. So is it the transplanters or the other features? Those are clearly risk factors for this. Peripheral neuropathies that in some cases we're still waiting for it to resolve, which means what? It may be irreversible in a small number of cases. So again, you treated, say, a simple urinary tract infection with a drug that was very effective but left behind peripheral neuropathy that is not resolving. And there could have been other drugs that would have treated the infection just as well. So that's the, that's the tension that exists. And then maybe cartilage damage avoiding children for this purpose because of this theoretical concern. The evidence for cartilage damage comes from animal models. Never proven outright in human studies because it's sort of hard to randomize pediatric patients to this and test the outcome. <coughs> We prefer to avoid quinolones if we have an alternative, but you will sometimes encounter them used in pediatrics because there are no other options for the given illness. But if there are other options, we use those other options. So, so far when it comes to special populations, 
we've talked about avoiding two types of antibiotics in pediatrics. One were the quinolones. What was the other one? The tetracyclines. Right, the tetracyclines because of the calcium deposits and the, the changes in the color of the, the teeth. All right, this here is an advisory that was published the final time two years ago. Chloroquinolones and how we ought to be limiting their use for three specific indications. Sinusitis, bronchitis, and uncomplicated urinary tract infections. When antibiotics are used to treat those three illnesses, fluoroquinolones are very commonly employed, whether it be Cipro or Levofloxacin or one of the others. And many times, something else would be more suitable. So why expose someone to these types of drugs that have potential for more side effects when something else would be more suitable? In the case of sinusitis or bronchitis, what else would be more suitable? No antibiotic therapy. 90%, sometimes higher percent chance that it's viral than it is bacterial. What about urinary tract infection? There are other drugs, whether it's Bactrim or a couple of others we're going to talk about here coming up. Overall safer agents that have less, again, we'll use this term collateral damage. There will still be cases where a drug like Cipro makes sense to use even when it's uncomplicated, <coughs> but that should be seldom. That should not be so often. All right, so this scenario here. We have this 58-year-old woman, history of osteoarthritis of the neck, which she self-medicates with NSAIDs. So ibuprofen, naproxen, one of those drugs. Presents to her provider's office, shortness of breath, Productive cough, fever, positive checks x-ray, no known allergies. What are you thinking about? So this is probably bacterial in origin, a bacterial pneumonia. And high on your list is going to be strep pneumonia. There's a good chance that organism is causing the illness. Anything else in the differential? Just that organism. You're going all in on strep <laughs> Could it be mycoplasma? There's a reasonable chance it could be mycoplasma. Could it be H. flu? Very reasonable chance it could be H. flu. Could it be Morixella? It could be. Not as high of a percentage, but could, could be Staph aureus. Could be, again, smaller, but could be. Those are all commonly encountered community-acquired pathogens for which we want to be covering empirically. That's how these patients are going to be treated. There isn't going to be culture and sensitivity data. They're going to be treated based on your best guess of what be causing the, the infection. How do you know that it's bacterial most likely? Is it because it's a productive cough <coughs> or yeah, when it presents in this way with the chest x-ray that is consistent with consolidation, then almost always it's going to be bacterial. There are other ways that are more accurate to confirm that this is um, through testing, that this is pneumonia. Does anyone know what they are? Have you talked about this yet? Probably the most accurate is chest CT. 
when these guidelines were written, I'm going to show you in the next page, that wasn't a preferred option yet, but it, it is now. Your ultrasound is oftentimes a more accurate measure as well. But it tried and true. Alright, so these are the guidelines, which are now 10 years old and yet to be updated, about how this would be approached. A macroline or a tetracycline. If there are no risk factors or what? Whatever DRSP stands for. Drug resistant strep pneumonia. If there are no risk factors for that, or very few of them, then you should feel comfortable using either a macrolide or a doxycycline. Does that make sense? That either of those two options should be suitable? Are they going to cover all of these things? And are they going to do so in a relatively safe manner? Yeah, if used appropriately, like stay out of the sun, those kinds of things, make sure there's no PT prolongation. Then either one of those would be suitable. And you're talking about five to seven days of therapy. No more. Some would argue five days for either therapy. But certainly no more than seven. What do you think is a risk factor for drug resistance to pneumonia? Previous antibiotic use, and if that differs depending on what authoritative body you read, some would say 30 days, others say 90 days. It doesn't go any further than 90 days though. So antibiotic use within the prior three months, there's a greater chance that you might be harboring resistant organisms. What else? Being elderly, in this case defined as 65 or older, She's not there yet, but that's, that's what would put her into that risk category. Anything else? History of treated bacterial pneumonia, especially recent history, would be another. Comorbidities, such as diabetes is a big one. What might be another one? HIV would be another one. In which case, you might be thinking about other organisms, too, with HIV because of immunosuppression. Certainly more threshold for treating them with aggressive antibiotics. Anything else? Underlying pulmonary disease, especially COPD. And some other chronic conditions. Some of the chronic renal disease in this category, too, but that's somewhat debatable. I'm not going to ask you all the different risk factors, but I want you to sort of appreciate what makes sense. If that's the case, where those comorbidities are present, then it's jumping right to a respiratory quinolone, such as respiratory fluoroquinolone, levofloxacin, or leviquin, yep. Or if that's not suitable for your patient because of some kind of mismatch between side effect and patient variable, then beta-lactam plus macrolide. Beta-lactam, usually at relatively high doses, plus the macrolide. Why do you need to use both? To cover the atypicals with the macrolide and the high doses of the penicillin to combat what might be a resistant strep pneumonia. Now you have two drugs acting on the strep pneumonia, one at high doses. That might be enough to combat the resistant species. If you know that your local community has a high rate of strep pneumonia resistance at baseline, then maybe you jump right to one of these options under number two to begin with. And that's defined as greater than 
Here at TOPS, we're right around 20%. So we're not quite at that threshold where everyone would get a respiratory quinolone, but we're moving in that direction. And my guess is by the next time that these guidelines are updated, which could be any day now, because we're due, there might be greater emphasis on respiratory quinolones used earlier on for a broader population. But we're not practicing that way as of yet. We're trying to reserve those drugs and using other things first because of the side effect profile of those. What happens if the respiratory quinolone is used and now that fails to work? What do you do then? There's not too many other options, right? Maybe that telithromycin ketec drug, which could do a lot of damage to your liver. We'd rather not burn through the quinolones because there's not much on the other side. Quinolones came around in the 1960s, and we have yet to develop a class of drug that is comparable to them in terms of being able to treat as many things as quinolones treat. That's really where the, the big, big development for antibiotics has come to a halt. There's lots of things that have been developed, but they're isolated in terms of what they're useful for. All right, metronidazole is the next agent that I put in here just for a place to put it. What do you know about this one? It's one of the drugs of choice to treat C. diff, right? If that is something that you're treating, then metronidazole is usually the first line option, given which way. You could give it intravenously. It's even better if you give it orally, right? C. diff is infecting where? The intestinal tract. The highest concentrations of drug will be if you administer it orally. Deliver the drug in the best way to the infection, in this case, oral. IV will distribute into the GI tract, but not as high concentration as if you gave it orally. So this is a drug that covers anaerobes, wide-reaching anti-anaerobic activity, including Clostridium difficile. It also covers many protozoal species. Organisms like Trichomonas or Giardia are susceptible to metronidazole. What do those organisms look like? The protozoa, protozoal species. Under a microscope, what does trichomonas look like? It's flagellated, right? It's flagellated. And thus, the other name of metronidazole is flagell, because it treats flagellated organisms, those protozoal species. All right, so we know that metronidazole is a drug that's very effective for treating C. diff. Doesn't always work, but that's the first place to start. What else do we know about it? What's this bottom thing? Disulfiram-like reaction. What's the other name for disulfiram? Antibuse, yeah, I'm pointing this out because someone took the pants a few years ago and they were just sharing their fond memories of it with me. <laughs> and they came across something about disulfiram and it wasn't listed any other way. It was just described as disulfiram. Antibuse wasn't listed in the question and they didn't recognize it by that name. If they recognized that as antibuse, they probably would have gotten that question right, they think. <laughs> so I'm pointing that out. Disulfiram is antibuse. And what happens with antibodies? What's the purpose of antibodies? It's a deterrent to keep people who have a history of alcohol abuse from abusing alcohol, provided they've agreed to the treatment. So you take antibodies every day, 
and if you fall off the wagon and decide to drink alcohol, what happens? You get really sick. You feel, you feel quite bad. Theoretically, we think something similar happens when you combine metronidazole and alcohol. So and here's a diagram of what we think is happening. So the metabolism of alcohol, two-step process for the most part. So alcohol to the aldehyde, aldehyde to the acetate. This conversion of aldehyde to acetate is what's blocked by antabuse. So the aldehyde accumulates. We think that same step is blocked by metronidazole. So the aldehyde accumulates, just like it does with disulfiram. And that produces the really bad feelings, the nausea, the headache, the flushing, the rapid heart rate, the increase in temperature. Not that this has ever happened to you, but if you ever suffered a uh, hangover from that alcohol, just saying that's ever happened, it's like a really, really bad hangover that persists for a few hours. That's what this will make you feel like. So what do we want to advise patients to do when they consume metronidazole? Not to also consume alcohol. Now many times you pick up a prescription for an antibiotic and that's on the label, right? It's whether they've told you about it or not, the little sticker is on the side of the bottle and it says, do not consume alcohol. Why is that there? Metronidazole, it's there to keep you from getting sick. The other antibiotics? Decreases efficacy. In what way? Upregulates. Cytochrome enzymes? Yeah. It does induce enzymes. It could enhance clearance of drugs that are susceptible to the same metabolic pathway. But that's not usually the reason, but that makes a whole lot of sense. I like how you rationalize that. Anything else? If you felt really lousy, would you drink alcohol? Some of you might. But in general, would you? Probably not, right? What's that going to do to your recovery time? It's probably going to delay it, right? That's the reason that label is there. Drinking alcohol is usually not consistent with quick recovery from your illness. So why take alcohol and combine it with antibiotics or vice versa? That's the reason. It's not because of anything more dangerous that might be occurring other than delayed efficacy. So it's just a general delayed efficacy because of the immunosuppressive properties of consuming too much alcohol, whether you feel it therapeutic or not. Then to go back, if you use metronidazole, does anyone know someone who's taken this drug? Yeah, yeah, it's a commonly used drug for certain types of um, GI infections like Giardia and some other illnesses. It's, um, it's pretty difficult to tolerate. A lot of GI side effects, nausea, diarrhea, metallic taste that makes everything taste terrible, so then you have anorexia as a result. So it's not a pleasant drug to take, and usually the dosing for some of these infections is like three or four pills three or four times a day. So it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to be able to take. In high doses, it may also be neurotoxic, peripheral neuropathy, or maybe something worse. Again, that's usually if you're taking too much of it, but it's something to be concerned about if, if you were to be exposed to a lot. All right, these other antimicrobials, what's common between all three of these? Nitrofurantoin, phosphomycin, and sulfonamides. 
Is there a common link between these? The kill stuff. Most of us, they're all antibiotics. That's a good one. I don't know what else you said. Most of them, most of us are familiar with sulfonamides, right? Bactrim and like drugs. Has everyone heard of that? Bactrim? What's that most commonly used for? Urinary tract infections. Yeah. How about the top one? Nitrofurantone. Who's heard of that? Couple people? All right. And then how about the one in the middle? Phosphomycin. That feels like a brand new drug, but it's been around for 20 years now. It actually discovered in the 1960s. All right, all three of these are drugs that are used for tract infections. That's the common link. In some cases, like the first two, that's the only thing they're used for. Bactrim can be used for a lot of different things, including UTIs. The first two, that's all they are effective for. Highly effective drugs against E. coli producing urinary tract infections, and in the case of Bactrim, a few other things as well. All right, let's start with the first one, nitrofurantone. I don't have any other slides to talk about this, so it's just this content right here. We think that drug works by inhibiting bacterial carbohydrate metabolism. I don't care if you remember that. I want you to remember that's used for UTIs. Uncomplicated urinary tract infections. Because it's not used for anything else, and because the side effect profile is relatively small, the risk for what is fairly low? Resistance and toxicity grouped together, that two-word phrase I've used twice now. Collateral damage. The collateral damage for this drug is relatively low. So think about this. You could treat an E. coli UTI with Cipro, or you could use nitrofurantoin. If you use nitrofurantoin, it's pretty well tolerated. And that's the only thing that drug is useful for. If you use Cipro, there might be a host of side effects, even though generally it's pretty well tolerated. And it might confer resistance to what? A whole lot of other things, because Cipro has broad spectrum activity. So that's why that collateral damage is so large. So an attractive drug that maintains very high efficacy against E. coli, because it's not used all that often. I'll show you some of those numbers. Phosphomycin. There was no one that knew this, right? This is given in a powder formulation that you mix up the liquid. It's one dose, equivalent to three days of therapy. This agent targets cell walls, but even before where the beta-lactams work, where beta-lactams prevent cross-linking of what? Peptidoglycan. Phosphomycin prevents peptidoglycan from being formed in the first place in certain organisms, mostly the gram-negative, commonly acquired like E. coli species. Concentrates in the urine, doesn't treat anything else, like nitrofurantoin, pretty well tolerated in the grand scheme of things. Rarely used. Well, it probably could be used more than it is. And the sulfonamides. Now, in addition to, and we have another slide to show you mechanisms here, but in addition to UTIs, what else is Bactrim a very good option for? MRSA. MRSA. It's a drug of choice for MRSA that's not severe enough to require what? 
vancomycin, which means usually not severe enough to require hospitalization. hospitalization, right? So someone presents with a skin abscess where there's a high probability of the infection being MRSA, what's the treatment of choice? Someone presents with a skin abscess where the suspected organism is MRSA. What's the treatment of choice? Yeah. You didn't expect me to go there, did you? So it's to cut that thing open and drain it. In many cases, especially the small cases, antibiotics might not even be necessary. And use the antibiotic in the absence of the drainage, and it may not clear the infection. So Bactrim is a very effective drug for MRSA provided the patient's not so sick, you need to use vancomycin, which is otherwise the treatment of choice. And an alternative to Bactrim would be, well, in the ambulatory setting, would be doxycycline. That's usually a very good alternative. Linazole, it is for the vancomycin population, is an alternative to that. It's pretty heavy-duty therapy right there. We'll talk more about that probably next week. All right, mechanistically, this is what Bactrim does. So we have sulfamethoxazole and trimethoprim work together synergistically in this pathway right here. This is bacteria synthesizing purines for protein synthesis. It happens de novo from scratch. Paraminobenzoic acid converted by an enzyme to dihydrofolate, converted by a second enzyme, second enzyme to tetrahydrofolate, and then you have your purines that are <coughs> Thymine gets formed through this pathway. <coughs> the first step here is blocked by one of the two drugs, I think it's sulfamethoxazole, the second, trimethoprim, and then you have complementary mechanisms. If you target just one of the two pathways, resistance occurs very commonly, very easily. If you block them both simultaneously, trimethoprim plus sulfamethoxazole, you have much, much greater activity. So these are folic acid synthesis inhibitors. That's what this is. Tetrahydrofolate is folic acid. Bacteria need to synthesize their own folic acid from scratch in order to use it. They're not able to take in folic acid from dietary sources, at least not naturally speaking. They might evolve to adapt and figure out a way to use folic acid, but usually they don't have any capability. What is this very similar to? These therapies are derivatives of another drug that's used for entirely different purposes. We haven't talked about this yet. It may have come up in other classes. I think the material itself is taught longitudinally throughout the curriculum. We may have talked about this drug when it comes to treating rheumatoid arthritis. We don't know how it works for rheumatoid arthritis, but we know how it works for cancer. It works in this pathway. These are methotrexate derivatives. Sulfamethoxazole and trimethoprim are antifolate methotrexate derivatives. If we were to give them in very high doses, what would we expect to see for side effects? bone marrow suppression. Rapidly dividing cells would be most susceptible to the toxicity. They would stop growing. So skin cells, hair follicles, 
GI tract, bone marrow would be suppressed. Now you've got to use literally truckloads of Bactrim to produce bone marrow toxicity, but that is a potential side effect. It makes complete sense based on how the drug works. What side effects are you familiar with otherwise? Photosensitivity, this is number three. In fact, this is top of the list of the three. So what are the three? Sulfonamides, and then whatever order you want to put them, tetracyclines and fluoroquinolones, but sulfonamides are at the top. Photosensitivity. Other than that, pretty well tolerated drugs. A list of things that you see here, but pretty well tolerated medication when used appropriately. So very attractive options to use in infections that are otherwise susceptible. This cornicterus in infants, this can, this type of therapy can cause an accumulation of bilirubin. Why is that a problem in newborns? Because there's already accumulation of bilirubin and there can be reduced clearance of that bilirubin in the first few days of life. Factor can further worsen that. Outside of that time period, it's a safe drug to use throughout infancy. You've just got to wait a certain number of days after the baby's born and make sure that the bilirubin concentrations are in the clear in terms of being normal levels. Another infection to which Bactrim is the drug of choice. And then we'll stop. An opportunistic infection for which Bactrim is our drug of choice. Have you talked about any opportunistic infections? Not yet. What does that mean? doesn't typically produce infection in humans unless the opportunity arises, like the immune system is compromised or the natural competition for its growth is no longer there. In this case, it's an illness that we see most commonly in immunocompromised patients, pretty sick patients with, say, severe immunosuppression <coughs> because of organ transplant rejection and the high doses of drugs we need to use to suppress rejection or more commonly, a poorly controlled HIV infection. Not can that's fungal, it's not Canada. It's, a, it's technically a protozoa. It's not tuberculosis, that's other types of drugs. The name has changed. In the past 10 years or so, the name has subtly changed. Probably the most common opportunistic infection in HIV. Bacterial infection, anyway. Starts with a P. Does it help? You might not know. Just sort of try and lead you down the pathway. Torch you for the last few minutes. Of the it's pneumocystis. Used to be used to be called PCP pneumonia, pneumocystis squinii, but it's been relabeled to. Pneumocystis gerevichii, I think is the name, but just call it pneumocystis. It's our drug of choice to either prevent or acutely treat pneumocystis infection in severely immunocompromised patients. All right, have you had enough? Yeah.
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> enough, so that means we're <laughs> All right, have a good rest of the day. I'll see you again on Wednesday. We'll pick up at this point and move forward. No, no, I don't want it. I like the smell of it. <laughs> this is where we left off. So let's talk about this, and then we will get into some new material. How much of this that you recall from a couple of weeks ago? So we um, talked about all of the beta-lactam drugs that are relevant for this course. There are more drugs in this family than what we've talked about in class, but we've spared you a lot of the details, even though it doesn't feel like we spared you a lot of the details. We did. What was a common mechanism of action for all of these drugs? Right, they're all cell wall synthesis inhibitors. The specific target is something known as peptidoglycan, and the enzyme system is transpeptidase, sometimes known as penicillin binding protein or proteins. The traditional penicillins, drugs like penicillin, you could put amoxicillin and ampicillin into this category too. Those are best for treating what? Some of the more common gram-positive infections, staph and strep species, typically are fairly sensitive to those drugs. There might be a few commonly encountered gram-negatives that may also be susceptible, but that's, that's pretty much it. Sometimes some anaerobes, but not a whole lot of it, other things. The anti-staphylococcal penicillins, what's a prototype example? Oxacillin. Oxacillin, right? See that drug name, map it back to this family, and those are drugs that are uniquely good for treating what? Staph, but not methicillin-resistant staph. If it's methicillin-resistant, we're referring to drugs in this family specifically. Although that could confer resistance to other antibiotics too, it literally means a drug that's resistant to one of the anti-staphylococcal penicillins, methicillin being the first in this family, albeit that drug's not used very often today. And then the anti-pseudomonal penicillins, what's the prototype there? Kipracillin, usually in combination with tazobactam, and the latter is a beta-lactamase inhibitor, right? It's a component of the compound that's designed to protect the real active drug from inactivation by this enzyme that bacteria sometimes acquire, and then are able to protect themselves against antibiotics. And those drugs are uniquely good for what? Treating many gram-negative infections, including, including pseudomonal infections, usually. All right, the cephalosporins, how they evolved. First generation were better for treating gram-positive organisms as you move across the spectrum, or move across the generations, the spectrum. <coughs> Her gram-negative activity improves, but means some of the, the gram-positive along the way. And by the time you get to fifth generation, you're right back where you started, but now it's even better than when you started, right? So now fifth generation, there's just one drug there. So far, it's very effective for gram-positives, including some of the gram-positives that have 
become resistant to the usual antibiotics, like MRSA is susceptible to the drug that's in the fifth generation. What are some of the agents <coughs> that you recall by name? Cephalexin. Cephalexin is an example of a drug that falls into what generation? First generation. Ceftriaxone is a drug that falls in third generation. And cefepime is another third generation, or fourth, technically a fourth generation cephalosporin. The difference between those two, the latter two, is what? <coughs> There's a bunch, but one of the biggest is spectrum of activity. One covers pseudomonas, one, one does not. Pseudomonas and some other invasive gram-negatives. The carbapenems, I think we decided on meropenem is the one to recognize. Anything else you recall about this class? Very broad spectrum of activity. Good choices for empiric therapy in hospitalized patients who are otherwise rather ill and you don't know exactly what it is you're treating. Not drugs we would typically use in the ambulatory setting because... It's also all IV. They're all given intravenously, usually multiple times per day. And the types of treatment, the types of things that you're treating with these antibiotics usually require hospitalization. They're not drugs for outpatient use. If, if you need that kind of drug, Doripenem is an exception. Ortopenem is an exception. So if you need this kind of drug in general, you're usually in the hospital because you're pretty sick. And then something else, someone mentioned it. The potential for neurotoxicity is a little bit higher with this class than it is some of the other penicillin-derived agents. And then monobactam, there's just as treonim in that family, and that is good for gram-negative coverage, including <coughs> pseudomonas. Maybe may less cross-sensitivity with other beta-lactams because of the structural difference. Remember that, that four-membered ring, the beta-lactam ring? whether or not it has something attached to that. In this case, there's nothing else attached to it. And maybe cross-reactivity is a little bit less because of that. All right, good. So it seems like you guys are good. I don't have to ask. Right? Because <laughs> usually that's where we begin, right? The idea to be there. So I'm making this up. All right, so this, what is this? Yeah, this is, this is a cartoon, an illustration of a, a ribosome. And what does a ribosome do? It essentially assembles, assembles protein within cells, right? Without ribosomes, protein assembly within the cell doesn't occur. And at the very least, the cell would stop growing. It usually would die as a result. This is the next target of antibiotic therapy. Protein synthesis inhibitors that work by targeting the bacterial ribosome. And all the drug usually needs to do is bind to and attach somewhere on the ribosome to slow, if not completely abolish, its function. So that's the next group of drugs of which the biggest example are the macrolide antibiotics. Erythromycin being the first. And then these two newer semi-synthetic versions of erythromycin, azithromycin being the one that's used most commonly. What do I mean by semi-synthetic? 
based off of a naturally occurring compound. The naturally occurring compound was was the first one, erythromycin. <coughs> that came from soil samples like many of our original penicillins. And now we just make some modifications to the structure to either change what or what. What are the two fundamental things we can change about antibiotics? The structure. The kinetic and the dynamic properties, right? So kinetic would be things like half-life, bioavailability, tissue distribution. Dynamic would be spectrum of activity. And there are subtle differences between these drugs, most notably in pharmacokinetics, but differences between them in both kinetics and dynamics. What do you know about any of these agents? Commonly used, yeah. Who here knows someone who's ever taken a Z-Pack? It's almost everyone, right? My guess is some of you might have been the victims. Probably the most overused antibiotic in this country. In part because it covers a lot of the things that you might be covered in illnesses that present very commonly. Unfortunately, many of those illnesses are oftentimes viral in origin, and yet we treat with this type of antibiotic because we don't know up front if it's really viral or not, or because we don't have time to deal with it otherwise. Anything else that you know about them? They can be usually pretty good alternatives in the face of true penicillin allergy because they cover many of the same organisms. Many of those original staph strep and some of the more common gram-negative species will be sensitive to most macrolides. In addition, they'll cover what else? Remember some of those respiratory pathogens we talked about a week and a half ago? What were some of those organisms? Yeah, in addition, you'll get, can I erase some of this? You can erase all of it. All of it? You don't want to see it? <laughs> What time did classes start today? Oh, not until 1 o'clock. Really? What'd you do all morning? Some people members have externals. Oh, some people? What the rest of you do? You have any tests this week? Yeah. What's it in? Primary care. Cellulitis? Yeah. <laughs> Skin and soft tissue antibiotics? Yeah. So you're all set for that, right? That's why you were so good when I walked in. You're ready. Yeah. <laughs> I've completely forgotten why you even embraced this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all the pathogens. All right. <laughs> Okay, so some of those pathogens, one was mentioned, atypicals. Most common of the atypicals is which one? Mycoplasma. And then what were some of the others? Some of the other atypicals include Legionella and Chlamydia. Not quite as common, but they're in that grouping of atypicals. Any others? 
Uh, well, respiratory infection, sometimes upper, sometimes lower. That's the only marker we have today? What are some others? Yeah, Haemophilus influenza is another. A very common one, strep pneumonia. What's another one? Those are probably the biggest ones. What population is most at risk for? <laughs> I'll try. Oh, yeah, she's getting what, what happened to that one? Carlson. <laughs> Who's who? Uh, where's this prevalence high? <laughs> Older age, <laughs> and also the very young, the very young and the very old. H flu. There are some other ones like Morexella um, catarralis is another one, especially when it comes to bacterial sinusitis. So the penicillins and the macrolides will cover strep pneumo, H flu, Morexella. The difference is that the macrolides will also pick up the atypicals. Why do they pick up the atypicals like mycoplasma, whereas penicillins do not? Because the older, the other drugs, the beta-lactams, are cell wall active agents and the atypical organisms either lack a cell wall or they don't need that cell wall to continue to function. There's something different about it. They're not susceptible to those types of antibiotics. So these make for uniquely beneficial drugs to treat respiratory pathogens because they cover almost everything that would be in your differential provided the source of illness is community acquired. <coughs> All right, what else? Why is it that azithro is so commonly used? Because, what was that? <coughs> it's inexpensive now. That wasn't always the case. But the majority of these antibiotics we've been talking about so far, some exceptions, are fairly inexpensive. It's oral. It's... It's effective. Well, if we keep using it at these current rates, it will not be effective. What else? So, so cost. Um, oral. I want, what I want to write there was this. What does that mean? What do you think I want it to mean? This is the letter F. <laughs> The bioavailability is really quite good. So it's good oral absorption. <laughs> F is the letter we use to represent bioavailability. You probably don't remember it, but we talked about it. it and I think it's, it's F because it's the fraction of drug that gets absorbed when given orally. Anyone remember that? No. <laughs> that was pre-white coat. All that stuff is gone. <laughs> I meant to be there for that. I just couldn't make it over. All right, so what else? Cost, oral, what? Side effects. 
Side effect profile is not too bad. What is the most common side effect of the macrolides? Any one of them, it's pretty it's similar. GI. Yeah, and what is the GI side effect? Upset stomach, di di <laughs> diarrhea. <laughs> yeah. And that is because these drugs have the propensity to stimulate modal receptors in the GI tract. And what does modal do? Promotes motility. Right, so these drugs are more likely to produce diarrhea than most other antibiotics. Almost any antibiotic is, seems to be associated with this as a side effect, more so macrolides than others. Now there's a tachyphylaxis that can occur. What does that mean? It's not as dangerous as it sounds. A tolerance will develop to this side effect pretty rapidly. So if you're able to tolerate the first few doses or the first few days of therapy, that diarrhea gets greatly reduced. The stimulation of the modal receptors doesn't occur to the same extent, or these receptors just become <coughs> desensitized to the continual stimulation. But it's a well-known, appreciated mechanism by which these drugs have an effect. Sometimes you might encounter a patient who's having a feeding tube place, like in an ICU setting, and erythromycin in a very large dose is given intravenously, just one time, and that's deliberately to promote motility, to get that feeding tube to the right location in the GI tract. Occasionally that, you'll encounter that. We don't use these drugs for that purpose very often otherwise because now you're just exposing people to antibiotics who don't have infections and now potential for resistance. So with the tachyphylaxia, However, you said it, is it with the mode of action, the targeted um, what therapy, does it decrease in effectiveness too, or just no. the diarrhea? Yeah, so the question is, does this, this word, tachyphylaxis, apply to the efficacy in addition to the side effects, and it doesn't. The side effect is due to stimulation of modal receptors. These receptors have nothing to do with the efficacy of the drug. It's simply the side effect. Fortunately, that side effect diminishes with repeated use of the drug. So if you have some diarrhea on day one, it'll be less on day two, it'll be less on day three, it may be completely gone by day four. It's something like that. It's that quick. It has no impact on the efficacy of the drug. There is no tolerance to that. There could potentially be resistance and all the complications there, but that is unrelated to this effect. All right, what else? Compared to what we've talked about for other or other drugs that treat respiratory pathogens, the spectrum is a little bit broader. That can be both good and bad, but in this case, maybe that's to our advantage if some of these organisms are equal in the differential. Remember the percentages here, you know, for some of these are 30, 40%, not just one organism, but a couple of them. Anything else? All right, so for those of you that have a little bit more intimate knowledge of those Z-packs, are you familiar with the directions for use? Two, two on the first day, and then one each day thereafter for how long? A total of about five days. A Z-pack is that. It's two pills on the first day and then one pill a day for the next four days. And if you don't remember that, what do you write for your directions? 
see the box or use as directed. You don't even have to know how to prescribe this drug. That's sort of the dangerous part about it. And yet it's probably the number one prescribed antibiotic in the country. ZPAC as directed. It's almost too easy. <coughs> how does that compare to other antibiotic therapies? One or two pills once a day for five days. It's short, it's convenient, it's almost too easy. Those all play a role in the frequency of use. Compared to almost everything else that you would use to treat these kinds of infections, these respiratory infections, it's simpler in both number of pills and duration of therapy. The competition are maybe other macrolides, which with clarithromycin is twice a day for seven to 10 days. Erythromycin is three or four times a day for seven to 10 days. Or maybe a tetracycline antibiotic that we'll talk more about later on, which is at a minimum twice a day for seven to 10 days. So easier, easier to use a macrolide medication. But erythromycin came first. So 30, 40, 50 years ago, that was the drug that was being used. Then clorithro, and now azithro as our drug of choice. It's once a day, so that probably means what? Either a long half-life or a long duration of effect against the organisms we're trying to treat. It has a long half-life, and it has a very high volume distribution. So it penetrates the tissues very well, and it just sits there. And that allows for that five days of therapy to equate to what? Close to the seven to ten days of therapeutic drug in your body. So even though you've stopped taking the pills on day five, you still have therapeutic concentrations of that drug in your body for another three, four, five days. So it doesn't make sense to retreat someone on day six simply because they're not better. They still have therapeutic levels of the drug in their body. Now, if there's been no improvement, then maybe you need a different type of therapy. But to repeat that therapy at that point simply because they're not completely back to baseline doesn't make any sense. And yet, does that happen? It certainly happens to some degree. So if you prescribe, um, I know you're supposed to, as a patient, always finish the prescription. If then you find out it's the wrong thing and you change it to a different antibiotic, does that mean you cut out the other one or does that make it worse for resistance? If you know that you're treating the wrong organism, then you cut your losses and start in on the right therapy. But you're right, in general, what we try to do is complete the course of therapy. And the rationale for that is what? Resistance. What's going to be left over? The most difficult to treat organisms, right? You may have eradicated enough of them to feel better, if you stop prematurely, then what's left over, if there's anything left over, is likely to be the organism that continue to grow. So now three or four days from now, you're even worse than you were before. That said, we probably do treat infections longer than we need to in most cases. Studies aren't great about trying to tease out what's the optimal duration. And when you do study these types of things, we often find out that we've been treating patients for longer courses than we need to. So seven to 10 days maybe should be five to six days, or 10 to 14 should be five to seven, that kind of thing. But it's not, it's not something we have a lot of data on. All right, so historically, the erythromycin goes back to the 1950s. 
comes from a town in the Philippines known as Ilo Ilo. And because of that origin, the first erythromycin product that was made commercially was known as Ilotycin. In fact, the ophthalmic eye ointment that's still used sometimes, especially in newborns, is we refer to it as Ilotycin. But it was simply the first brand name. And then we have these newer semi-synthetic derivatives. So these are what they look like. They are these large, as the name suggests, macrocyclic compounds, macrolides. You just have to trust me that these are relatively large compounds that are in a ring shape. Now, when drugs work on the ribosome, like these drugs do, they usually bind to one of two places on that ribosome. All they have to do is bind to one site. But the drug, based on its class, usually has a preference for one site versus another. So if we go back and look at that picture of the ribosome, there's one side of the ribosome that the macrolides tend to favor and bind to. There are two sides. What are the two sides known as? Large and small. The relatively small side, the 30 subunit, 30S, and the relatively large side, the 50 subunit, 50S. These large macrocyclic drugs tend to bind to which side? The larger side. They bind to the larger of the two ribosomal subunits. So maybe that helps you remember what they specifically target, because I want you to remember that. I want you to know that these drugs are not just ribosomal active, they target the, the larger of the two subunits. Now the majority of drugs that are removed from the body are cleared through one of two primary clearing <laughs> organs. What are those two organs? The liver and the kidney. Which of the two is physically larger in size? The liver. Which of the two do you think is the primary clearing organ for these large drugs? The liver. Yeah, so that works to our advantage as well. So the macrolide drugs target the larger of the two ribosomes and are cleared through liver metabolism. In fact, there is no renal removal of these drugs at all. What does that have an implication for treatment? If there's renal impairment, we don't have to worry about dose adjustment. Right? We had to worry about that for all the beta-lactams. Don't have to worry about that for macrolides. So that's an advantage, but it also may work to our disadvantage. Lack of renal involvement means lack of benefit for treating UTIs, renal and urinary tract infections. Right? If your drug can't get to the site of action, it's not going to have very good efficacy. It may have no efficacy. So even though in a Petri dish, an organism like E. coli is usually very sensitive to a macrolide antibiotic, clinically the drug tends not to work because it doesn't distribute to the site of infection very easily. All right, so mechanism we talked about, clearance we talked about, as it's being cleared, there's a large involvement of the cytochrome P450 family of enzymes. And for two of these three drugs, there's a lot of enzyme inhibition that go, comes along with that. 
erythromycin and clarithromycin, the first two agents in this family, are strong inhibitors of cytochrome P450. Which of the cytochrome enzymes is most prevalent when it comes to drug metabolism? The 3A family of enzymes. Erythromycin doesn't have 3A inhibition. So that's yet another <coughs> advantage of that drug when it comes to using that versus other macrolides. So it's one pill, once a day, short course, well-absorbed, long half-life, high distribution, very few drug interactions. So a whole bunch of things working in its favor that lend to the overuse phenomenon that we see. But when it comes to erythroclithromycin, all sorts of drug interactions. Usually of inhibition, which means what happens to the substrate drug. The other drug that's usually metabolized by those enzymes will not be metabolized and instead accumulate. accumulate, potentially to the point of being toxic. We used this example with the statin medications. When we were talking about drug-drug interactions early last semester, just theoretically what might happen if you combine drug A with drug B. The example I used, I think, was erythromycin combined with a drug like any statin of your choice, higher levels of the statin medication, enzyme inhibition. You don't see that with azithromycin. Now, the adverse effects, there are a little bit more of them than what we saw with the penicillin <coughs> drugs. The GI stuff, the diarrhea we know about. There's also cardiovascular concerns. What is it? You may have read about this. It seems like it's in the news at least once a year. Macrolides and QT prolongation. Yeah. These drugs have a propensity, it's true for all of them, have a propensity to increase the QT because of the passing channel blockade. So prolonged refractory periods. Not something you're going to see in everyone, but those predisposed, like patients who already have a long QT, congenital or otherwise, taking multiple other drugs that prolong the QT, these drugs may further prolong that interval and set these patients up for what? Torsade. A greater risk for a torsade-like rhythm. Yeah, so we have to think about that when it comes to use of these drugs. But other than that, there's not a lot of outright organ toxicity. And that's because of what? With the beta-lactams, the lack of toxicity was due to what? No cell wall in human cells, so the target doesn't exist. For the macrolides, the target's a ribosome. Do human cells have ribosomes? Yeah. They do. So what makes them relatively safe? Yeah. The subunits are different, right? In the bacterial species, the subunits are 30 or 50S. What are they in humans? The 80 120 or something? 70 120? 40 and 60. Yeah, 40 and 60. So there potentially could be some overlap there, but for the most part, there is not that much. And so outright organ toxicity outside of maybe to the heart, maybe to the liver. There's some stress on the liver as these drugs are being metabolized. It's rather uncommon to see other things going on. All right, so a picture of what a macrolide might do. Bind to either one of two binding spots on the 50S ribosome. All it has to do is bind to one of them and the ribosome is inhibited, the bacteria stop growing, in the best case scenario, the bacteria are already killed. 
one of the more common mechanisms of resistance for bacteria against beta-lactams was what? Production of beta-lactamase, or sometimes referred to as penicillinase enzyme. An enzyme generated to destroy the antibiotic. In the case of macrolides, the most common mechanism of resistance is the formation of something called ribosomal protection proteins, which essentially means that the binding site mutates to the point where the macrolide can no longer bind. And if it can't attach to where it usually attaches, it won't be effective. There is a relatively new type of macrolide. It's called a ketolide, spelled with a K. The drug in this family is a, it's a palindrome, Ketac forwards or backwards, but telithromycin is the generic name. I simply want you to appreciate that this exists and why it exists, but it's not very often used, and I'll tell you why that is as well. This will bind to two binding sites on the 50S ribosome simultaneously. And so if one of the sites is mutated, and that's usually what happens, there's just one site that mutates. If one site is mutated, the other site can still be bound by the drug. And all the drug needs to do is bind to one of the two sites, and it will be effective. It's no more effective if it binds to one site or two sites. It just has to bind to at least one. Mutation renders macrolide ineffective. Mutation would not render ketolide ineffective. In the organism that we deal with the most, for which this mechanism of resistance is relevant, is streptomoniae. So there's a high rate of resistance to streptomoniae in some communities, both to penicillins and to macrolides. And when it's to macrolides, it's this mechanism that we're alluding to here. So a ketolide would usually work in the face of organisms that are resistant to macrolides. Um, so these ribosomal protection proteins are, are Something's changing about the protein structure within the ribosome itself. That's maybe a better way to phrase it. Yeah, so don't get caught up in the semantics of what this actually looks like. Just know something changes about the binding site. And it's usually referred to as a, as a ribosomal protection protein comes along and confers this kind of resistance. The, the dilemma with the ketolides, and there's only one in this family, is that they are very toxic to the liver. And so we tend not to use them very often. I think I've encountered one patient that's ever been treated with this type of drug in the past 15 years or so. So it is a very unique niche. There's usually other types of therapies we can go to if a macrolide is thought not to be sufficient because of resistance. It's usually some of the newer quinolone drugs. And if that fails to work or is not tolerated, then maybe then you end up on one of one. <coughs> this it's a family of medications for which there was hope there would be a whole bunch of them, but so far we have just one, and it's a it's a pretty dangerous drug from a liver toxicity potential. Also, a lot of drug interactions like the original macrolides. All right, so drug name perspective certainly wants you to remember azithromycin be able to recognize that drug and where it fits. Maybe erythromycin too. It was the first and there's a lot of drug-drug interactions that occur. All right, so let's walk through this scenario here. So we have this 
25-year-old, otherwise healthy man presents five-day history of these symptoms. Throat culture yields infection with streptococcus. So you can do a rapid strep test, and if it comes back positive, it's most likely going to be strep pyogenes. What do you want to do next? First thing you want to do is check the allergy history. <coughs> Get in the habit of doing that up front so you don't forget to do it later on. It's very easy to just forget to ask that question. And then you know, three hours from now, someone's calling you from the pharmacy saying, did you know this person had an allergy to the drug you prescribed? And you've got to further delay therapy as a result. All right, so let's just say that this person tells you that they have no known allergies. Now where do you go? Penicillin. <clears throat> a penicillin would be the drug of choice. And you can treat this empirically. There isn't a need to do sensitivity testing on this. Even if you did, oftentimes you're going to get some erratic results. So penicillin, which penicillin? Penicillin BK. Does anyone know what kind of dose? I won't ask you to remember this part, but it's usually 500 milligrams three times a day. Anything would be suitable as an alternative? Amoxicillin is certainly suitable as an alternative, especially in what population? In children, because it's an easy to administer drug, relatively easy drug in that population. All right, let's say that the patient does report a history of a rash with penicillin somewhere in the past. ZPAP, would that be suitable alternative? It would be. Anything else? would make the most sense. So we're talking about a drug like cephalexin or keflex. And then it comes down to risk-benefit. Is the history of the rash severe enough to warrant staying away from all beta lactams, or is it distant and mild enough that we could probably get by with the cephalosporin, which isn't complete cross-sensitivity? If the history of allergy were more severe, such as something that looks anaphylactic in nature, you want to stay away from all beta-lactams. Less severe, you can probably get by with another beta-lactam drug that isn't exactly a penicillin. How do you get the history? You, you ask questions, right? <laughs> and what would some of those questions be? Yeah. 
So what's the history of penicillin allergy? What do you recall from that? What oftentimes do you hear? Don't know. Don't recall. Or something that's not allergy at all, but it was labeled as such, right? Some kind of intolerance, usually GI-related, in which case the, the entire menu is open for what you want to use for treatment. Another option, I think someone said this, another option that might be used is a drug we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, clindamycin, which has probably come up in other classes, right? Which is why it came up now. What do you what do you know about that drug? It can it can be used to cover um, some more of the common gram positive organisms, including strep. So it's a, a, a common alternative in penicillin allergy for that purpose. What else does it cover? Anaerobes in general. Not all of them, but some of the more common ones. Which one does it miss? Uh, anaerobes. Like common, common anaerobes. Clostridium, right? It doesn't cover clostridium. And thus, what we will sometimes see with clindamycin overuse is what? Antibiotic-induced colitis. Overgrowth of C. diff. Many broad-spectrum antibiotics can put people at risk for that. Clindamycin is sort of near the top of the list because it covers a lot of things that uniquely compete with clostridium for growth and yet allows clostridium to grow. How does clindamycin work? Didn't cover that. We bring it up right now, so if you had to guess, we're up to two mechanisms of action, so your chances are 50%. Does it inhibit cell wall synthesis, or does it inhibit protein synthesis? Protein synthesis. And like the macrolides, it targets the larger of the two ribosomes. It's also a 50S subunit active drug. <coughs> How is it administered? IV or oral. IV or oral, or... Or maybe I am, although very seldom. I don't know if that's often any degree of frequency. Or, or topical. Clindamycin topically. So it's administered by multiple different routes and used as you might imagine to treat multiple different types of infections. But most commonly, skin and skin structure infections, which is in your future. So you say. All right, so clindamycin is another example Chlorine phenicol, a drug that probably hasn't come up anywhere else. To be complete, it fits here. It's also a drug that targets the 50S ribosome. It is not very often used in this country unless we're dealing with a particular organism that's resistant to all the usual suspects. It has too much bone marrow toxicity to be accepted for use here. Although if you do some mission work, you may come across this as a drug of choice in resource-poor countries for the treatment of bacterial meningitis. It does have a role there still, even though we'd prefer not to use it if we had other options. And then the tetracyclines, and one souped up fancy kind of tetracycline known as a glycylcycline. Now it changes a little bit. It's not just 50S ribosome, it's now the smaller 30S ribosome. That's what the tetracyclines will target. 
So they also enable protein synthesis, but now the target has moved over to the smaller of the two ribosomes. What do you know about tetracyclines? Sometimes good for skin infections. Not usually the drugs of choice, although if there's MRSA, it can oftentimes be an attractive option. That's good to know. Broad spectrum activity, gram positive, gram negative, and atypicals. Everything that a macrolide will cover, tetracyclines will usually cover. So if you're thinking about using one but can't because of some patient-specific feature, then think of the next class. Maybe that one we've done. Like to use a macrolide, but this problem exists. Go to a tetracycline. What would, be, what would be an example of someone you'd like to give a macrolide to, but you can't because of some incompatibility between the patient and the drug? Allergies. Maybe allergy, although alert, true allergic reaction to macrolides tends to be relatively rare in the grand scheme of antibiotics, but certainly that could be the case. Maybe resistance, right? You just know because of antibiogram data or historical use in your patients that macrolides don't work, whereas they work everywhere else. For your patients, you've overused them and they've lost their benefit. Liver problems? Underlying liver disease, and maybe a little bit further, drug-drug interactions, right? <laughs> Macrolides, lots of interactions, tetracyclines, very few. From an enzyme inhibition perspective, although Azithro allows us to get around a lot of those. What else? That's the most common. Patients where there's a concern about prolonged QT, there's a cardiac concern, you'd like to use a macrolide, what would be the next best option? Usually a tetracycline. You go the other way as well. Start to look at some of the side effects of tetracyclines, and you'll see why it is that macrolides get used more often than tetracyclines. Anything else that you know about this family? Parasites? Doxycycline? They can treat some of the tick-borne diseases, like the drug of choice to treat uh, or prevent Lyme disease. Doxycycline is the most commonly used tetracycline out there especially when it comes to Lyme disease. It's easier to take than the other tetracyclines and or has more data to support its use for a broader array of indications. Anything else? Malaria prophylaxis. Malaria prophylaxis, doxycycline can also be used. Acne. Um, Potential for teratogenicity, which reminds me, there are a couple of papers I posted in the supplemental material folder, which means they are entirely optional reading, but it's pretty good stuff that might be useful for reference later on down the road. One of them is a position paper from, I can't remember which group, but it's from one of the larger, I think it's American College of Physicians, which talks about the dilemma of treating upper respiratory tract infections with antibiotics. And the other is drug use in pregnancy, in which antibiotics, antibiotics specifically, might be beneficial or concerning or we don't know much about. And those are questions that come up a lot 
when you get into your clinical experiences. So rather than have you memorize all that right now, it's there for your reference going forward. Many of the penicillins are considered very safe drugs to use in pregnancy because of their targets. You get into some of the other categories and the, the data aren't as clear and you can make some leaps that maybe there's more risk because the targets of the drugs start to overlap with human targets. Other side effects? Tetracyclines. GI side effects. What's most common here? It's nausea, yeah. What can make that nausea get better or diminish its, its intensity? Some, sometimes other medications, though we'd like not to use other drugs to treat drug side effects. <coughs> Taking with a little bit of food. In this case, like something bland, like a few crackers can make a huge difference in patient tolerability of tetracycline drugs. You've got to be careful of the type of food, though. Why is that? Some, something with dairy and then um, grapefruit's a problem with other antibiotics, the macrolides. Grapefruit inhibits three enzymes. The macrolides are both inhibitors and substrates for three enzymes. So grapefruit's going to elevate your erythromycin levels. It doesn't do that to tetracycline. The interaction with the dairy products is chelation. What's in dairy? Multivalent cations such as calcium. And what will happen is they'll stick together. So tetracycline taken at the same time or doxycycline taken at the same time as mineral containing foods, they may stick together and you have reduced absorption of your antibiotic, which means there's a greater chance for Treatment failure and resistance. Yeah. So it's not just any food, it's foods that are, that's why I said relic breads and crackers, that type of thing. Provided they're not otherwise fortified with calcium or something else. Anything else? Alright, so that's what these next few slides are. It's the side effects we get concerned about with these tetracyclines. So GI, this deposition in calcified tissue, where is this problematic? What, what population? Children. children. Children, pediatrics. This is a cosmetic, cosmetic side effect. In children who do not have their full adult teeth that have been started to be developed yet, there could be a permanent staining of those teeth, a grayish, blackish color. It's not otherwise harmful, but cosmetically that can certainly do a lot of damage otherwise. So avoided in pediatric use because of that effect. Vestibular toxicity, mole sleep dizziness, relatively rare in most patients. All right, first on our list, not in any particular order, of three drugs that are likely to cause photosensitivity. What does that mean to you? Photosensitivity. The time to burn in sun exposure is advanced quite a bit. It happens much more quickly. So you've got to be extra careful when you're taking this kind of antibiotic and being exposed to the sun. Limit that as much as you can. So this is one. There's two other families of drugs 
that are antibiotics that are high on the list for the potential to do this. There is sometimes liver toxicity. There's sometimes renal toxicity. Not high incidence of either one, but it could go either way. Majority of quinolones undergo some liver metabolism. Not a lot of cytochrome enzyme involvement, but some enzyme involvement in terms of liver metabolism itself, and then some kidney clearance. The good news about the kidney clearance is what? Unlike the macrolides, they may be effective for treating infections that are in the urine. Not usually our go-to agents, but could have activity should we need to use them. Now this here, I put in question marks because it's not exactly clear if this is true or not. But let's preface this by starting with how many people have, have outdated medication at home? Why? Because you're all hoarders. <laughs> because it may come in useful somewhere down the road. Or just because you don't like to throw anything away. What's the harm in doing that? Repurposing old drugs. They may lose their activity. Rarely does it do anything harmful, right? Outdated medications, antibiotics or otherwise. Rarely does that drug do anything harmful other than it loses efficacy. Now, in the case of antibiotics, the harm is that if it's had reduced efficacy, greater transfer resistance. That might be meaningful. But most of the time, drugs, do they maintain activity beyond their expiration date? Yeah. They do. They're very conservative expiration dates that are assigned based on government regulations. And it's been proven time and again that many drugs have very close to full activity years beyond expiration date. True for some antibiotics as well. There are rare instances where drugs will lose their activity rapidly even before their expiration date. What's an example? Nitroglycerin, a great example of what we've already talked about. Anything else? Any other comment? Well, I was just going to ask if that's all formulations or just like the oral. It's not all formulations. It's some more likely than others. Certainly liquid preparations tend to expire prematurely compared to other products or other versions. IV formulations tend to expire earlier than other oral dosage forms. Is there any example of a drug that would do the opposite? Like it would concentrate if it sits too long, or is it everything is more likely to lose that? Um, sometimes a drug might be converted to, to metabolites that have toxicity. And that's where I was going with this. There have been some data, they're all data, to suggest that tetracycline has a metabolite as a property of decomposition that can cause kidney toxicity. And so that would be one drug to just get rid of. If, you, if, if that's in your medicine cabinets, go home tonight and throw it away. How are you going to get rid of it? Don't flush it. The best way to dispose of your medication. Burn it. Someone said back to the pharmacy. You can't do that. I don't think you could ever do it. But actually, um, what's the dilemma with that? There, you, it's, it's an if. There's, a, there's some uh, stipulation needs to be met. The pharmacies can't take back the medication, right? They can't put that back in the supply chain. So by law, they're not allowed to take back medication. As soon as it leaves the building, that's it. But they are increasingly housing bins that you could 
disposed of unwanted medications, mostly driven by what crisis? Opioids. Opioids, right? That's what's pushing this forward. And if you can't find a pharmacy that will do that, what's the next best place? In fact, this is really the preferred place. Police stations, yeah. Almost all local police stations will take back medications, usually, usually with no questions asked, but I can't promise you that. And then the, there are these national take-back days, which have been started up a few years ago because of the opioid crisis, where a larger number of centers participate in massive take-back campaigns, bring anything back you want, but it's only two dates a year. It's end of April and sometime in October. We just The last one just went by a few weeks ago. If you wanted to flush it, could you do that? And you could do anything you want. <laughs> Zach's against flushing. I don't know exactly why, but he's got a big thumbs down. You can't filter that stuff now. Ends up in the water supply. The poor fish. Environmental Protection Agency would like us not to flush medication into the environment for obvious reasons. There are some drugs for which it's considered acceptable per FDA. Do you want to guess which ones? It's not antibiotics. It's drugs that might be life-threatening if exposed to just one dose of that drug. What meets the criteria for that? Oh, not just not just carfentanil, but opioids in general. <laughs> Maybe for some of us it would take that much, but any, any opioid in general is considered to be a flushable drug for the FDA. EPA still doesn't like it, but for FDA standards that would still measure up. Everything else, it would be to throw it away, but mix it up with something that's considered not to be palatable. What's kitty litter or coffee grind, something like that, and then put it in a bag and throw it away. Technically, that's the best way. I guess you could burn it. <laughs> Incinerators. You bring your drugs to the police station. They incinerate it. Drug interactions are ones of chelation. Let me just say a few more things. We'll take a break. Drug interactions are ones of the chelation. So milk, antacids, those kinds of products. You've got to do what to minimize that. Separate administration times. It doesn't, it doesn't preclude the use of the drugs. It means it, it's more complicated. Take your antibiotic, and then two to four hours later, take the other supplement, should you still need to use the other supplement. The last thing here, tigacycline is an IV-only, high-octane tetracycline drug that has expanded spectrum activity against MRSA. You won't see this used very often. It's here simply to be complete. It's not going to be the right answer to anything. What I think is really interesting about this drug is even though we give it IV only, the most common side effect is nausea. So that, that means there's probably something above and beyond a local effect to why the nausea is occurring. It's probably doing something to trigger the, the nausea center in the brain, and thus we see that occur. All right, let's take a break, like five minutes, and then we'll talk about chloroquinolones.